Okay, fellow students, you will need your thinking caps on this morning. Um, turn to Job 1. Uh, we're going to spend the next three months in Job and Ecclesiastes. And uh, those books deal with the foundation of life its own self, right? There's not a lot of frosting on the cake in the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. We're dealing with the meat and potatoes, the skeleton, the structure, if you will. Uh, Job is a fascinating character and fascinating uh, book. Job is really the supreme example in Scripture outside of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. It illustrates the problem of undeserved suffering. The, the mystery of unmerited misery, as an author has put it at that point in time. You know, it's puzzling to us humans when we encounter pain that is not punishment for sin. When the upright, the righteous, the good people suffer seemingly without any understandable cause. It, it leaves a vacuum in our mind and we seek to try and fill in that blank and figure out why that occurs. Job probably is the example from a human standpoint of the most comprehensive suffering. Job suffered financially, emotionally, socially, maritally, um, physically, spiritually. There's almost no area of his life that was not touched to the core as a result of this suffering. The other thing about Job is not just the example of suffering. James doesn't put attention on Job for his, his suffering, he puts attention on his endurance. So the key question that Job asks and answers is not should the righteous suffer, they're going to. It's how should the righteous suffer? How should the righteous suffer? <clears throat> Job illustrates godly endurance under very prolonged trials. Most of us have far less trouble with pain as long as it's short, right? When pain is short and preferably predictable, we can deal with it. But when it's non-predictable and it's extended, pain tends to have a very huge impact on the human condition. So let's talk briefly about the book before we dive into the details. The book of Job is kind of like an epic poem. It's almost like Homer's Iliad or Odyssey at this point in time. It's a mixture of prose and poetry, of monologue and dialogue. When you look at chapter one and two, that's the prologue. So think of this as kind of an epic poem and chapters one and two are the prologue. They're kind of like the program notes that tells you in the audience what's going to happen on the stage, if you will, and that's all narrative prose. The epilogue is the last part of chapter 42 and that kind of is the bookend on that, if you will. That's also a narrative prose. Uh, it kind of tells you what happened in the rest of Job, etc. Virtually all the material in the book between chapter 3 and chapter 42 is poetry. Okay? Very, very uh, eloquent. It's not poetry that rhymes like we would expect rhyming here, but it's poetry in the Hebrew sense of the word. Job is a unique book. It, the vocabulary in this book is truly staggering. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of words that appear only in the book of Job, vocabulary words, and nowhere else in Scripture. So it's a hugely unique book at that point in time. It shows literary influences from not only Hebrew, but Arabic, Aramaic, uh, Sumerian, Ugarkic. So there's a number of language inputs into this. 
Uh, it also is one of the books in Scripture that discusses the most subjects. Some of the subjects that are discussed in this book are astronomy, geography, hunting, mining, travel, weather, zoology, legal court terminology. So when you read the book through, you're going to see an enormous number of topics covered. Author, you cannot read this book without believing that the author was an eyewitness because there's huge amounts of this dialogue that literally are verbatim. So it had to be somebody who was there who probably knew shorthand or could take good notes, almost like the book of Matthew. Matthew, of course, as a Levi, I mean, as a tax gatherer, knew shorthand. That's why he took down whole sections of Jesus' dialogue verbatim in the book of Matthew. Job has that same characteristic. There's literally very detailed dialogue down to the word. Probably a single author, most likely Job himself, although historically we're not absolutely certain of that, and probably the oldest book in the Bible. When you read Job, it becomes extremely clear that he probably lived around the time of the patriarchs, so Abraham, or maybe even a little before Abraham, after Noah. This book is post-flood. One of the things, though, I want to make a, a suggestion to you here, and I'm going to hope to document this in the next couple of weeks. When you read the commentary on the weather, on the landmass, on the geography, you would almost be forced to conclude that this is not that far after the flood because the land geography itself seems to be reacting to post-flood conditions. So we're going to talk about that too. It's very interesting. Uh, some things we believe why it would be in the period of Abraham. Uh, Job lived 140 years after his suffering. So he probably lived 200, 210 years. You would be forced to conclude that a range of Job's age when this occurred is probably somewhere between 60 and 70 years old. All 10 children are grown and raised and out of the house. Probably didn't do that by 30. So we would presume probably between 60 and 70 when this occurred, he lived 140 years after that. So we can presume that he probably lived close to 200 years old, which would clearly be within the realm of the patriarchs. Um, all of Job's wealth is calculated in, in agronomic terms, livestock, very much oh, uh, uh, the, the measurement of wealth during Abraham's period, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Job also, as the father of his family, functioned as the priest of his family, which was very much Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The father, the patriarch, was the priest of the family as well as the, the bloodline lineage of the family at that point in time. Lastly, there's no references in here at all to any Mosaic institutions at all. There's no priesthood, there's no law, there's no tabernacle, none of that is even mentioned. So we would conclude that it had occurred significantly before that period of time at that point, it predated Moses. The land of Uz, is not a political state, it's a tribal entity just east of Canaan. It's down by Edom. I wish I had a large map here, but if you go east of the Dead Sea a little bit, south and east of the Dead Sea, probably where it occurred, when you read the customs, the vocabulary, the geography of the book, it would suggest Northern Arabia. It's probably not far off from where it would be at that point in time. It was obviously near a desert, but it was obviously also fertile. You have to have a lot of pasturage for sheep and etc. But if it wasn't near a desert, you wouldn't require camels. So probably in that neck of the woods would be pretty close. Okay, 
there's a couple of scenes we want to go through today in chapter one and chapter two. Scene one describes Job's circumstances, and that's going to be the opening section we're going to get into right now. And when you read the first few verses here, you're, you're forced to conclude that Job is very prosperous on multiple levels. He's prosperous in his character. He's prosperous with his family. He's prosperous with his possessions. He's prosperous with his friends. So let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So we're going to talk about his character. When it says there was a man in the Hebrew, that's an emphatic position. He's a specific individual, a live person, a specific person named Job, and it describes his character by calling it blameless. What that means is without moral blemish. He was morally whole. There was no ethical deficiency in his life. It doesn't mean perfect. If you have a translation that says perfect, you have a translation. The word perfect in the, in the, in the Hebrew translations in English simply means whole, complete. He conformed to God's demands for his life at that point. He had it was I guess one word would be he was a man of integrity. He was a man of integrity. It also describes him as upright, and that simply means he was straight. He lived a straight life. He was not living a crooked life. He did not deviate from God's standards. So he's blameless, character number one, upright, description number two. He feared God. What does it mean to fear God? Reverence. Reverence. Take him seriously. Take him seriously. Any other thoughts on what it means to fear God? Knowledge of who he is and what he is. Knowledge of who he is and what he is. Okay? Conveys obedience. Conveys obedience. So there's a sense of God and I are not buddies. God is not my Santa Claus. Respect, authority, very, very good. He revered God and submitted to God's authority. He had a holy respect for who God is, what God says, and what God does. Okay? I'll give you a quote from Oswald Chambers that made a lot of sense to me. Quote, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Let me say that again. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Interesting question. If we're living in fear, clearly we're not fearing God. If we fear God, we understand that he is the authority in the universe. This is his planet and we are tenants here. So it says that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and he did something else that's interesting. He shunned evil. He turned away from evil. If you fear God, you reverence God, which means you will love what God loves and you will hate what God hates, right? What does God hate? Sin. God hates evil. So Job actively rejected all that was not godly. If you want to be a godly person, you cannot just pursue God. You have to actively reject all that is not God. Because you can't tolerate, God will not tolerate unholiness, correct? Because that's who he is. So this is a description of his moral character. What about his family life? His family life in verse 2, he had how many sons? Seven. Seven sons, three daughters. Both those are very interesting numbers. Seven is the number of completion, right? 
three is the number of perfection. Seven cents, three dollars. It was interesting. A large family in an agricultural economy was a very big blessing because labor was manual at that point in time. It's fascinating. Uh, he had seven sons, three daughters. It also says in verse four that they got along extraordinarily well. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. That means their birthday. When it says on his day, that means they had birthdays annually for all seven sons, and they would invite their sisters, and they would come and celebrate. They got along very, very well. They had family harmony. Here's what's fascinating. Job would invite, or Job would, would um, they would do their feast for the birthday in verse 5. Interesting, how many days would they feast? More than one. It says days, days of feasting. It must have been some kind of birthday celebration, right? When the, verse 5, And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, so there's a set number of days they're having a celebration for their birthday, what would Job do? It didn't say Job went to the party, which is interesting. It doesn't say he didn't, but it tells us his, his consecration to the Lord and his commitment to consecrate his children because he would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning, interesting, not a late riser, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, all ten children, ten burnt offerings at least seven times a year for seven sons. He's sacrificing a lot of animals here, right? For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I am fascinated that Job was not only a righteous man in his relationship with God, he was utterly and completely committed to the righteousness of his family. And he made sacrifice, physically and time-wise, for that. Now, you and I do not offer burnt offerings for our children. Sometimes we like to offer our children as burnt offerings, but we, the, the, yeah, I know. And your grandchildren too, just wait. Uh, although you'll, you're more forgiving of your grandchildren than you were your children. Trust me, right? You, you would never put up with that if your children behaved that way, but your grandchildren are cute. Your children were not cute when they did that. But it's interesting, in our case, I think the, meta, the, the, the word picture here is rise up early and pray. Offer the sacrifice of praise and offer the sacrifice of prayer on behalf of your children or your grandchildren. Um, I would not be here except for my mother and my father's prayers. I would not be here. I would not. I would be dead. My mother prayed me out of more stuff than you can even believe. And most of you have been saved from situations that you do not even understand because of the prayers of your parents and your grandparents. It is so powerful. It is so powerful. Pray for your grandchildren even if you don't have any yet. I'm serious. You prayed for the spouses for your kids before they were married, right? Job is basically giving you a model here that says everybody that comes under your frame of reference, and that means if you know their name, they're an article of prayer before the Lord. All right? So get up early and do that sacrifice. And he doesn't say he's praying for sins. He says perhaps they might have said something in this party that was not right. Maybe. Not even sure they did. I'm going to pray for him anyway. Okay, You know, one of the things we do when we are concerned about our physical health, we get vaccinations. 
when you get a vaccination before the disease or after the disease before the disease prayer is a vaccination pray up front that god will keep your children grandchildren nieces nephews from sin you don't only pray after they sin of course you would pray after they sin but pray up front that's the message job is giving us at that point so he wanted their relationship with the lord to be correct as well jump back up to first three his material possessions wealth was measured in land animals and servants you can see the numbers there he used sheep for full for food and wool for clothing the camels or transportation and milk uh chuck swindoll holly loaned me a, a biography by chuck on on uh, job and and chuck is so good um, putting real life bones on things he said this is a trucking business Camels were large-scale transport over the desert. This is the trucking business of the era. These camels were probably out for rent, and he leased them out to people who wanted to take goods and services across the desert. Oxen are good for uh, tillage, traction, obviously pulling plows, meat, etc. And donkeys transport. One of the delicacies of that era at that period of time was donkey milk. I've never tried it, but it'd be kind of interesting. They'd probably look at cow's milk the same way it says he had very many servants and the descriptor here that kind of sums it up it says he was the greatest of all the men of the east so he's kind of the bill gates of his era so you look at job and you say i mean my flesh looks at this and goes this is too good to be true you ever done that you look at it and you go i mean come on this guy has no doggy breath, no warts, no skin tags, no gray hair, no not. I mean, everything in his life is working. And he's a good guy. He's a holy man at the same time. You can't even not like him, right? So you read this description, and the reaction our flesh has to Job is exactly Satan's reaction. Satan can't stand it can't stand it he's highly respected in his community he's got lots and lots of friends you're going to find out he was really a model elder if you want to look at the prototype elder for the new testament biblical elder job is your old testament model elder at that point in time so we've gone through a description of job's circumstances now i want to jump over to verse six and we're going to get into scene two here's what's utterly fascinating scene two is unseen it's unknown to Job. It describes what goes on in the realm of the spirituals behind the curtains. It tells you what is backstage in heaven, unseen by us on earth. Have you ever wondered what goes on backstage at Valley Baptist Church before all the lights come up? You ever been to a theater production? Ever been in a theater production? Sometimes backstage is not exactly what you would you'd want to see at the footlights right so this is almost a backstage look behind the scenes it's um chapter one is very visible it's on earth it's familiar it's known it's humans it's possessions it's character you look at verse chapter one verse one through six and we say i understand those first five verses i mean they're describing things i can see and touch and taste and familiar when you jump to verse six through twelve all of a sudden it's in heaven it's a little unfamiliar it's non-tangible it's in the heavenly places the third heaven as Paul would say and you're gonna see the setting and the players and the most important thing to understand for verse 6 to 12 it's the reason for the drama the reason for the drama is found here 
it's imperative that you understand that Job doesn't know this. Job has no clue why all this is going to happen to him. So in many ways here, the Holy Spirit is kind of giving us a whodunit. You ever seen a murder mystery on television? And you, the audience, get to find out who did it, right, first, because you see it. And then the rest of the two-hour show, they're bringing clues to the fore. But you already know who did it because you saw the front end of it, right? You've kind of seen the, the, the end before the beginning at that point in time. So the Lord here pulls the curtain back and says, I'm going to show you a little bit about why this occurred and how it occurred. Job did not know that. He's going to be subjected to two major tests, both of them very painful, both of them suggested by Satan, and both of them allowed by God. Okay? Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, the first test is on Job's possessions and on his family. Test number one. Test number two, found in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 2, is a test on his person, his health, his physical body. So we have two tests here. Now it's intriguing that each one of these two tests has two scenes. There's one scene in heaven and one scene on earth for both of them, right? The scene in heaven tells you why it occurred. The scene on earth tells you how it played out. The scene in heaven in both cases includes an accusation by Satan against Job and an accusation by Satan against God. So scene one and two have an accusation by Satan twice. And the scene on earth includes two assaults by Satan on Job and his reaction to them. Okay, let's jump in. Chapter one, verse six. Now there was a day, that means a specific point in time, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Sons of God means unfallen angels. These are created beings, spirit beings. Obviously, angels don't reproduce, but sons of God are created spirit beings, and they come to present themselves before God. It's fascinating that they come to station themselves before God. Where is God? And what is he doing? Every time God the Father is presented in Scripture, he's only in one position. He is seated on the throne. Every time you see God the Father, he is seated on the throne. And these sons of God, created angels, are coming to present themselves before God. That means they're stationing themselves before God to report on their activities. I find it fascinating that there's accountability in heaven. There's accountability in heaven. It's not that God doesn't know everything. He doesn't need people to come and tell him what's going on in his universe, right? He's omniscient. But it's a picture for us to understand that that accountability occurs. It's also fascinating. They came to present themselves before God, and there's a little phrase at the end of that verse, and what does it say? And who else shows up? And Satan also came among them. It doesn't say Satan was at the head of the line. It's almost like Satan's just kind of waltzing in, disguising, you know, kind of just hanging with the good guys. I mean, we know he's a deceiver, right? The word Satan, um, uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, has has, the Hebrew here means the Satan. Ha-Satan, the Satan. It's a direct article at that point in time. And what does the name Satan mean? Adversary, accuser. It means someone to resist. Who is Satan accusing? 
You and you and you and you and you and you. Satan is accusing every one of us in heaven as we speak. The good news is we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the Son, who defends us as we speak right now in the heavenly places at that point in time. So it's fascinating that Satan has access to heaven now, has had access to heaven in the past, and will have it according to Revelation 2.10. And his primary purpose in accessing heaven is to accuse you and accuse me accuse the saints it's I am so grateful that first John says the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing which means the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing you today tomorrow the next day right it's eternal eternal efficacy at that point chapter uh, 1 verse 7 the Lord initiates a conversation with Satan and he holds Satan accountable and he asks Satan a question he already knows the answer to. And what is the question? The Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? I think God knew the answer to that, right? Satan said, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. If you've read the book of First Peter, which we went through a few months ago, First Peter 5, 8 says, Satan is like a roaring lion who does what? Prowling around seeking whom he can devour, who he can dominate, who he can consume. All predators on planet Earth are opportunists, right? They're going to get calories where they can, and they're looking for vulnerable prey so that they can exploit and dominate them, and that is the word picture here of Satan. Which means Satan not only has access to heaven, Satan has access to earth. Now, he's not omnipresent. Satan can only be in one place at a time. Right? Which is probably good. But he's got a lot of help. A third of the angels went with him, and they're, they're known as demons and fallen angels and things of that nature. So they get around a lot, right? But they're not omnipresent. They're local. Now, they can move very quickly in the spiritual realm at that point in time. So Satan is not all in one place at once, but he's around like a lion. He's looking for prey. He's looking to, to dominate. I find it fascinating that Jesus told Peter, right after Peter's comment to him, that Satan had demanded permission to sift Peter like wheat. When you sift wheat, you are basically removing the chaff from the grain. If you've ever been sifted by life, that is a painful process, yes? yes. Is God interested in sifting you so you can be purified? Yes. Satan is interesting in sifting you so you can be tempted into sin and separate you from God. There are very different goals. Satan's goal is always, always, always to separate you from Jesus Christ. Always. Because apart from Jesus Christ, there is no life. God's goal in allowing tests in your life is to always draw you closer, to superglue you to the sun, right? So the, the missions are very, very difficult. It's fascinating here that Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to pray for you that your faith will not fail. Have you ever thought that it, Jesus didn't say, I've denied him permission to sift you? He didn't say that. When you read P. 
Peter's behavior, you would be concluded that God gave Satan access to sift Peter with restrictions. And Jesus prayed for him so his faith wouldn't fail, but he did deny Christ under the temptation of Satan. Correct? There are, there are times that you're going to look at your life and you're going to say, I am obviously being sifted. The good news is you have an advocate with the Father and Jesus is praying for you just like he did for Peter. I'm intrigued if you go on to verse 8 that God voluntarily initiates an assessment of Job to Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now my question is, why would God say that to Satan? What's God's motive in, in saying to Satan, have you, can check out my servant Job. There's no one like him on earth, and this is the Father speaking. Does that not blow your mind? I mean, there's no higher praise other than what Jesus received at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the highest praise of a human life in Scripture. There's no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fearing. That's God's assessment. By the way, there is no higher title ever in the Bible for a human being than being called a servant of God. And God takes the initiative. Now, here's, here's my thinking on this, and I hope you'll go with me on this. Satan basically says, I've been walking to and fro the earth, seeking people to dominate who are vulnerable. And God says, here's one you haven't dominated. Here's one who loves me that you haven't been able to get to. You think you're big and bad and rough and tough? Look at Job. Right? Jo Satan couldn't dominate Job. Now, I love this description of Job from the Father, but it also paints a target on his chest. A big target. And Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Fascinating. Does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10, hast thou not made a hedge about him and built his and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But here's the challenge. Put forth thy hand now and touch all he has and he will surely curse thee to thy face. So here's what, here's exactly what Satan is doing. This is, by the way, um, not a primary attack on Job. It's primary attack on the Father. Satan is attacking God here, and here's what he's essentially saying. I can't attack Job's behavior, so I'm going to attack his motives. I'd love to get to him, but you won't let me. You've put a hedge around him, you've protected him and prospered him, etc., etc. And by the way, God, Job doesn't serve you because he loves you. Job doesn't serve you because you're worthy of worship just for who you are. Job serves you because you buy his worship. You pay him off with health and wealth, baby. The only reason he loves you and obeys you is who wouldn't? Any fool would serve you if you treated them like that, right? This is an attack on the worth of God in terms of deserving worship for who he is. It also tells us Satan knew Job. Oh, yeah. And all the people. Yeah. But, but Satan has got a good intelligence network. 
By the way, it's fascinating. Um, I can't remember who they were describing. I, I read a biography of a guy who was a prayer warrior, and they said uh, he is not only known in heaven, he's well-known in hell. And I thought, when you're well-known in hell, it means you're effective. It means you're effective for the glory of the Lamb. So Satan is basically saying, worshiping you, God, is a commercial transaction. It's just a contract, baby. Worshiping God is just a coin that buys heavenly favors and protection on the earth. God, you're not worth worshiping for just who you are. In, in essence, Satan is revealing his own character. He says, nobody does anything except for self-centered motives. You know, with him, what's in it for me? That's our MO as human beings. What's in it for me? Because the, the essence of sinfulness is self-centeredness. And Satan's point of view is nobody does anything unless it's not about them. So why would anybody worship you, God, for who you are? You're not worth worshiping for who you are. you got to buy your worship. In other words, God, you're a prostitute. You pay people to love you. When you understand that this is primarily attack on God, Satan's accusing Job, but he's slandering God. He's telling God that he's not worth worshiping just on the basis of who he is alone. That's pretty low blow, but it also reveals the character of Satan. I'm fascinated that this challenge is accepted by the Lord. The Lord initiated this conversation knowing exactly what Satan was going to do. And the Lord says to Satan, Behold, if this doesn't make you terrified, you do not understand the nature of your problem. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, what's the word after that? Say that really loud. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed with the presence of the Lord. And you read that and you go, whoa, do you realize this is a permission slip signed by the king of the universe that gives Satan within, within boundary, he's on a leash, permission. Permission. God is sovereign. Satan's on a leash. There's limitations, but all of his stuff is in Job's power. What, what we're saying here is there are times in your life you are going to have undeserved trials that you are called to endure unto maturity. Period. Dan. There's also a perfect demonstration that Satan lives in the um, temporal and God lives in the eternal knowing exactly how the will respond. Yeah, I'm, I'm utterly fascinated that God really, really really trusted Job. You are in essence saying, Job, you are carrying the standard to prove to the heavenly host and humankind here and forevermore that I am worthy of worship just for who I am, not for what I do for you. And I'm thinking, wow. Yeah, so when God trusts you with trials, God entrusts you with trials. Write it down. Don't look at me like that. God is going to entrust you with trials that you are to be a steward of, that you are to manage for his glory. 
Now that runs so counter to our desire for pain-free comfort and health and wealth and all this other stuff. But the Lord says to his children, there are times I'm going to entrust you with trials that you don't deserve. Now I understand I can hear people say, well, we're all sinners, we deserve hell, I, I get it. But not all suffering is the result of personal sin. Some, yes, we sin, we suffer, okay, you got that come, but not all. There's a chunk of times people suffer and, and they didn't sin specifically for that suffering to occur at that point in time. So God had given Satan permission now under God's authority with God's limitation for what he's going to do. It's fascinating that verse 13, Satan times his assault during a birthday party. Don't tell me Satan doesn't pay attention to your calendar. Don't tell me he doesn't know when the best time to tempt you with something is. If he knows you're weak, you're going to get tempted. It's pretty much the same kind of temptation as long as it reliably works. He's not going to change his MO. Satan is not a creative person at all. He just copies God and then twists it 180. So we go verse 13 through 19. You're going to now see the satanic assaults. We have the satanic accusations in verse, in essence, 8 through 12. Now when you go 13 through 19 and you get the assaults, you know these pretty simply at this point in time. On the birthday, verse 13, they're all in the their oldest brother's house we get four messengers coming bam 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 the sabaeans stole the oxen and the donkeys killed the servants that's from their nomadic bedouins by the way from southwest arabia verse 16 the fire of god burned up the sheep and the servants probably lightning or a volcanic eruption verse 17 the chaldeans formed three bands raided the camels killed the servants they were marauding raiders from that region and verse 19 a great wind from the wilderness collapsed the house and killed all 10 of your children could be a tornado could be a desert windstorm fascinating that they couldn't even finish the report before the next messenger showed up so when you read these verses you're forced to conclude that job got all this message within a matter of minutes that's where the phrase comes, when it rains, it pours. Yeah, this was, uh, this was a deluge, right? I mean, this occurred probably within 10, 12 minutes. You couldn't, couldn't even finish the sentence before the next one shows up at that point in time. So there's no time to prepare or adjust. These are just hammer blows. So he goes from wealth to poverty, from a healthy family to childlessness. All of his servants are burned up, dead, murdered, captivated, except for four... And you think you had a bad day last week. Get over yourself, right? It's interesting that Satan, under the authority of God, apparently can influence nature and human behavior, but only with God's permission. You know, remember, remember the, the disciples were rowing across the, wind, the, rowing across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping in the stern, and this great storm comes up, right? Threatens to capsize the boat. And they wake up Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And he stands up and he says, he rebukes the wind and the waves. He wasn't rebuking nature. He's rebuking the spirits behind nature that were stirring up the storm trying to drown the Son of Man. That's Satan. Now, Satan has power to influence nature within God's constraints, within God's limitations. Don't ever fear Satan as terms of he's running loose and God's not in control. 
Satan does nothing without the leash of Almighty God. When you read the book of Revelation over and over and over again, and it will say, and it was given to the beast, and it was given to the dragon, and it was given to the false prophet, which means God allows, but God has boundary conditions on what anybody can do. Satan usurped that power from Adam. Yes, absolutely true. Faith said Satan usurped that power from Adam. Adam was given dominion over the planet. And he and Eve gave it away, in essence, by rebelling against God. That dominion that we were supposed to exercise, Satan wanted and got within the framework of God's sovereignty. Verse 20, what's the reaction to all this? Everybody's dead and all his possessions are gone. It says he rose, which means he got up off the ground. He was on the ground, obviously, in grief. He tore his robe. That's a sign of utter grief and anguish, turmoil and shock. It says he shaved his head. Um, hair in the scriptures are always listed as a sign of glory and worth. Shaving your head meant a total loss of glory, a total loss of worth. Huge, huge losses at that point in time. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. It doesn't say he fell to the ground and said, God, why did this happen to me? This is not fair. I'm a good guy, blah, 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 blah. He said he fell to the ground and worshipped. Is that our first response when we encounter pain and suffering and loss? It's fascinating. It says he worshipped in humility and submission. It was not angry or bitter. He did not blame God and he did not curse. Who's cursing now? The only one who's cursing is Satan. He's lost round number one in this fight, right? Job will curse you. He will deny his relationship to you once you shut off his goodies. Have you ever thought that sometimes God takes away some of your goodies to show you your heart? Do you love him because he is worth your love or do you love him because he gives you earthly stuff? I think sometimes God, by the way, knows your heart. He doesn't have to withhold stuff to, for him to know what your heart is. Sometimes he allows trials into our life to hold the mirror up so we can see what's inside. So I'd rather not always know that. Matter of fact, 99% of the time, I don't want to know what's inside because it's usually not good, right? But the Lord says, for me to purify this, you have to start with a diagnosis. Which means I'm going to hold the mirror up so you can see what you're like. And the best way to do that is I'm going to allow some trials in your life and take some things away. We think that the blessing is only God giving us some things. Sometimes the greatest blessing of the Lord is removing something from your life or someone from your life, right? Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. It's fascinating that he praises the name of the Lord, which represents the nature of the Lord, in the middle of total loss and suffering. When you read Job's response, it's pretty clear that his focus was on God and not on stuff. Right? Now, the thing you have to understand here is Job and his wife have just dug ten graves themselves. There were no servants. 
There was no mortuary. They're digging their children's graves and they buried them by the house. Yourself. We don't understand very, very little of this degree of loss. We have very, very difficult time to understand this. Job, obviously, it's easy to say, well, stuff is stuff. You know, I'll go to work again. <clears throat> Don't replace children or grandchildren, right? All of them at once. Job says, I came out of the womb with nothing, and I'm going to go back into the tomb with nothing. We get deluded into thinking that we own stuff. We get deluded into thinking we own relationships. Everything between birth and death is on loan. You can make a list of everything that you think is yours. Your treasures, your collectibles, your precious, all your relationships that you think are yours, your reputation in the community, your position, your prestige, your power, your family, your children, your grandchildren, all those things you own, we own, I own, none of it. All of it's on loan. All of it's on loan. And I can tell you, I understand that now. A lot better than I did six months ago. Many of you have been through loss and you now understand that in a way that you didn't understand before. This is reality. It's on loan. God owns everything and we only manage it. And how long do we manage what's his? As long as he says you can manage it. And only as long as he says you can manage it. We delude ourselves into thinking different. Okay, chapter two. <coughs> um, there's one point. Job um, is kind of written in stereo. Uh, on the left side, you see the picture up in heaven with the dialogue with Satan. But all Job sees is the right side. He sees what's in front of him. Exactly. Job, Job has no clue why this is occurring. By the way, suffering is much easier to deal with if you know why it's happening. Not knowing why something occurs. You want to make yourself crazy? Have a symptom that the doctors can't diagnose the cause of. And try and live with that. I've got this ailment, but no one seems to know what's causing it. Now that's very hard to live with because you can't do anything about it. You just have to live with it. You can't even treat it because you don't know how to treat it. That's where Job is here. So chapter 2, we have a repeat of the same scene. I'm going to move through this pretty quick, guys. We have about eight minutes. God exonerates Job's conduct. He said in chapter 2, verse 3, By the way, Job still holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him, underline, without cause. God declares Job innocent, and the suffering was not warranted by Satan's attack. Satan, in verse 4, says, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Satan accuses Job of, as long as you don't touch his skin, he's willing to sacrifice the skins of his servant, his skins of his children, the skins of his stuff. He's just really self-centered, right? He's willing to sacrifice other people, but not himself at that point in time. And God says, even scarier, he is in your power, only spare his life. That is the only limitation Satan has. Kill me now. Oh, man. 
And it turns out when you look at verse 7, it says, by the way, Satan doesn't wait to inflict pain. It says he went out from the presence of the Lord and immediately Job got sore boils from the foot of his hat, foot of his sole of his foot, to the crown of his head. Possibly elephantitis, leukemia of the skin. I'm going to read you a list that Chuck Swindoll made. It's a comprehensive list of Job's symptoms throughout this book. Chapter 2, verse 7, he had inflamed ulcerous sores. Verse 8, persistent itching. Verse 12, degenerative changes in facial skin and disfigurement. Chapter 3, 24, loss of appetite. Verse 25, fears and depression. 7, 3, delirium and sleeplessness. Chapter 7, verse 5, purulent sores that burst open, scab over, crack, and ooze with pus. Verse 7, worms that form in the sores themselves. Chapter 9, 18, difficulty in breathing. Chapter 16, 16, darkening of the eyelid. Chapter 19, 17, foul breath. 19, 20, loss of weight. Chapter 30, verse 27, excruciating continual pain. Chapter 30, verse 30, high fever with chills and discoloring of the skin as well as anxiety and diarrhea. Chapter 29, verse 2, it went on for months and months and months and months. Verse 8 said he took a pot, sir, to scrape himself. That's a piece of pottery while he was sitting in the ashes. He was itching so bad he was just scratching his skin off with his pot, sir. He was non-recognizable. <clears throat> he was socially unclean. He was literally sitting in the garbage dump of the city where they burned rubbish and trash and threw human excrement out. The beggars lived there. He is socially rejected, isolated, alone, and he still doesn't understand anything about why this is occurring. Zero information. Heaven is silent. There's times, friends, when you and I are going to experience suffering and trials, and God will not tell you why. He says, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Job's wife in verse 9. She's in shock and confusion, fear, grief, doubt. Remember, they've lost all their children. By the way, if Job dies, it's probably a death sentence for her. There is no protector and there's no provider. And when you're an elderly widow in that culture, there wasn't a lot to go on. She went from being the wife of the greatest man of the East to be sitting in a garbage heap with him and she thinks he's going to die. Right? So she concludes that God is unfair and that's why Job is suffering. So she thinks remaining faithful and trusting a God who's unfair is really stuck on stupid. So the solution is, is to curse God and then he'll strike you dead and then you will be relieved from your pain. Right? The solution is, let God kill you. I mean, if he, you know, if he struck everything, have a send him lightning bolt. Job's wife is personifying now, but remember, she's in the middle of massive grief and massive loss and massive shock and beyond our comprehension. But her basic philosophy is, life is only worth living if... I want you to write that down. Life is only worth living if... And you know what? We all fill in the blanks after that if. Life is only worth living if it's on my terms. That was her orientation. Life is worth living if it's on my terms. 
Satan has got to be smiling. He told God, Job is going to curse you, and now the counsel to curse Job comes from his bride. Satan's going, you're almost there, Job. Your wife's telling you to do it, right? I'm telling you, there was watching. Perspective here, folks. This is a principle. Write it down. Pain distorts our perspective and shortens our time horizon. Pain distorts our perspective and shortens our time horizon. If you put you and I in enough pain, we would very likely respond exactly like Job's wife did. I just want to die. It hurts so bad, and I don't see any end in it. And I have had a number of friends and people I know suicide because the pain became for them unbearable okay it's interesting that her view of death as pain relief is echoed by the three friends we're going to talk about next week by the way I talk to people all the time and they say well uh, you know when they die they're just going to go to a better place at least they won't be in pain there really yeah if you know Jesus if you don't know Jesus, this pain is going to seem like nothing compared to what you're going to get at that point in time. Now, Job, very carefully, and I thought thoughtfully in verse 10, rebukes her. He says, you speak of one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? So he basically, foolish here means an empty wineskin. It means a spiritually closed mind. Job's perspective is God is the potter. We are the clay. Cannot God do with us whatever he pleases? God is God can do with what he owns whatever he chooses to, right? So does he own you? Yes. By right of creation, by right of redemption. Does that mean he can do whatever he wants with you? You okay with that? Careful. You're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Really? Really? I sat there this morning and bawled my way through I surrender all. When you say I surrender all, don't you dare sing it if you don't mean it. Because all is a blank check. You sign your name and you say, Jesus, you bought me body and soul, spirit, physical, mental, spiritual, now and forever. Now that's reality. And I realize that's a statement of faith. But I promise you, there will be times when you think God's going to take you up on that and says, you surrender all, let's find out if you meant it. Let's find out if it's real. Okay? So, the last principle, real briefly, sometimes bad advice comes from good people. Sometimes bad advice comes from good people. you got to learn to discern. Okay, let's briefly review. Life is difficult. We live in a fallen world. We know that. The book of Job answers the question, how should the righteous suffer, not will the righteous suffer? You know that. They will. It's how you're going to suffer. Suffering is not always the result of personal sin. Next point, God permits undeserved trials that we are called to endure unto maturity. That's the end result. You may get bad advice from good people. Learn to discern. The book of Job defends the glory and perfection of God's person and God's purpose. 
Chuck Swindoll says, God is full of compassion, but his plan is beyond our comprehension. And here's a summary statement, and we're going to come back to this again and again and again and again. When you know who, you do not need to know why. At the end of the day, when Job knew God and saw him, heard his voice, he no longer needed to know why. Because we live on promises of a God we know, not explanations. Amen?